You're listening to the Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Enjoy! Five years ago, almost to the day we were joined by our current guest, I think I'll have to call you Dr. Major Paul H. Smith now. (laughs) I see, Paul, that you've gotten your Ph.D. since we were last together. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Yeah, that was a long siege. uh, Over 12 years, not quite 13. Tell us what the title of your dissertation was before I do the rest of my introduction. Well, um, it is, uh, is physicalism really true, really in quotes? And then there's a subtitle I can never remember. Um, that is how PhDs go, aren't they? Yes, yes. Uh, the but idea you, but was, you basically were proving or attempting to, from what I can understand without having read it, but only the extract is that you asked ESP as evidence that mind is more than simply matter. Right. Yeah, the, the, the doctrine of physicalism, um, it, it, and it's, it's essentially widely accepted in science and in psychology, um, <clears throat> and philosophy as well, is that um, there is only physical attributes to the universe. So everything is physical or it's a consequence of physical facts. And if that's the case, then there are all kinds of problems that arise for mm-hmm. things that, that humans value. Free will, possibility of, uh, of life after death, possibility of the existence of God, and so, so on. If physicalism is true, those become either impossible or essentially or very remotely possible. And, so, and it's apparent, I mean, even from your own experience with the military, I mean, because you worked in the Stargate program and you were introduced by our dear friend Ingo Swan, with whom you worked, and he with Ed Putoff did the original protocols, you were one of the very few to be able to actually work with Ingo Swan. Exactly. And I'll tell you, those were the experiences that convinced me that physicalism is probably not true. So my argument was, I won't, I won't, I'll spare you all the details, but the argument was that if physicalism is true, then things like ESP shouldn't work, and I explained why in the dissertation. And then I, then I cite the evidence, uh, not even all the evidence, I just took a, a small subset of the evidence, four different paradigms, remote viewing, social remote viewing, presentiment, and distant, uh, or direct mental interaction with living systems, four sets of, exper- of experimental protocols, and um, went through those exhaustively because what often happens is that stuff gets summarized, and the skeptics can just say, oh, you know, you, you, you're playing up what, what that evidence really is. It's really not as impressive as you say. But I put it in there as exhaustively as I could, so they can't do that. Well, and I thought one of the really interesting additions since I last looked at your website at www.rviewer.com is you actually put up your own lab work from some of the Stargate programming. They've declassified about 90,000 pages since you left. How, how has that changed sort of the public's opinion, or hasn't it? Well, um, I don't know if it's changed the public's opinion so much, because it is pretty laborious to wade through all that stuff. There have been a number of folks who post things on the web, and, and uh, I've used it in a number of public presentations and things I've written and such. Um, what it's done is, as you well know, there's been a lot of conflicting claims about the history of the program, about what we accomplished, about how it worked, all those kinds of things. You get a whole bunch of different claims made by the various folks that are active in the field. And what the access to those documents does is allow us to get to the bottom line and find out, either find out who's who's telling the truth and who isn't, or at least find out what really happened 
uh, and what the implications of things really were. And, and of course, that's very important. Well, I think it's important for our audience to know, Paul, that, you know, not only are you a retired major and now you're a doctor, but you're credited with over a thousand training and operational remote viewing sessions during your time with the unit at Fort Meade. And in addition, you are an Arabic linguist, an electronic warfare operator, strategic intelligence officer, for Special Operations, Mid-East Desk Officer, Tactical Intelligence with the 101st Airborne Division during Desert Storm Shield, Strategic Intelligence Officer in the Collection Directorate of the Defense Intelligence Agency, meaning I'm saying all of this not only because it is true, but I, I want our audience to understand that you pass all those tests of, you know, credential that one would say, oh, this is a credible source. So describe for our audience who may not be familiar or might be tuning in for the first time to 21st Century Radio, what remote viewing is and how the military has used it. Remote viewing relies on an underlying human faculty that we all seem to have, an, un- an ability that is normally referred to as extrasensory perception. Um, <clears throat> and remote viewing is a form of extrasensory perception. It's kind of a, it, well, not just kind of, it's a skill set that you can learn that allows a remote viewer to perceive uh, information, experiences, uh, visual kinds of things, sensory perceptions, all those kinds of things, at a distance or that they couldn't possibly access normally with their regular senses or behind shielding or even distant from them in time. It's a form of controlled clairvoyance is probably the most simple way of saying it. Yeah, that's it. a nice way to describe it. Mm-hmm. And uh, the military used it uh, during the Cold War to what they could find out about Soviet targets, uh, Chinese, Hezbollah, all of, all of the so-called bad guys at the time, uh, to get information from, from targets in those um, countries and those, uh, from those folks that we couldn't get in other ways. Uh, they essentially exhausted all of the other intelligence collection methodologies, so they, they uh, came to us. And in some, not all, but many cases, we were able to provide information that was later confirmed to be true. In in your book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage, uh, uh, we we learn about some of those instances, but are there any that stand out in your mind as, as sort of being, I guess, the ones we would point to in order to say that this is a value both as an individual skill and for national security? One of the classic cases, uh, which I like to cite a lot because we actually now have the smoking gun on it, um, there's a very well-known remote viewer named Joe McMoneagle. Yes, who, I've interviewed Joe. Joe's great. He, he, is, he is probably the best remote viewer that, at least right now, is known to the public. And Joe, um, very early on in the program, was given the coordinates to a, this huge building uh, up on the White Sea in a, so, in a shipyard uh, the Soviets had built. And we didn't know what was going on in there. When I say we, I mean the U.S., intelligence establishment. In fact, no one in the West knew, and we were worried about it because we thought it might be an aircraft carrier or something, and that would have changed the balance of power as far as the high seas were concerned. They, they targeted Joe on this and one other viewer named Hartley Trent. Nothing was known about this building. Nothing. We had satellite photos of the outside, and that was it. And Joe and Hartley proceeded to describe this submarine, and Joe's, Joe was in particular very detailed about this, describe a submarine that sounded like it was something right out of science fiction. Uh, movies, because it was, by Joe's description, it was bigger than the Washington Monument. 
Um, it had its missile tubes in front of the uh, the sail or the conning tower on it. Um, it was and it was just absolutely immense. It, it was probably by Joe's description probably oh half to two thirds as bigger than any other submarine ever known. And putting missile tubes in front of the sail on a submarine was considered uh, just crazy. Well, it was dismissed. Uh, the the folks at the National Security Council didn't believe it. But ten months. After Joe had done his uh, description of it, the Soviets indeed floated out the Typhoon submarine, which was exactly as Joe had described it. And this is a very great project for us because there's no way that he could have known what was in there. It's absolutely impossible that he could have known that, and that's, that's provable that it's impossible that he could have known what was in that building, especially as well described as it was. And... Since then, the CIA has declassified the work that was done. So we have a direct, completely pro, uh, guaranteed provenance of, of that evidence of that case, and there's no way to deny what Joe did. And it's very clear and very evident. It's, 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 a, great, <laughs> it's a great instance of this. Well, I, I think in, for anybody who has looked at it, and yes, it's really important to know who's good and doing the work the way it's meant to be done, and who has invented their own systems, and they call it remote viewing. Give us some of the critical signposts of good remote viewing and good remote viewing training, because you offer many, many opportunities for the public to learn, both of your DVD, A World Without Secrets. What what do we look for to be sure that we're getting the right stuff, so to speak? Well, first thing is... Um a real teacher will will be able to demonstrate his, uh, or let's let's put it this way: a real teacher who has the uh, pedigree from the military would be able to offer the evidence necessary to show that he really was with the program, or she, because we had some women as well. Um, if they say, "Well, oh, I worked for a foreign intelligence organization in Europe, and I can't tell you about it," they are probably making that up. Mm-hmm. Um, if they if they say, well, I just learned it from so-and-so who learned it from so-and-so who learned it from so-and-so. And it's all secret and we point, can't tell. <laughs> be careful, yeah. <laughs> be careful about that. Um, if they work, if they talk about remote viewing in terms of channeling or some other ESP modality, uh, I, I don't want to put channeling or any of that stuff down, but that's not remote viewing. And there's a lot of people out there teaching what they claim to be remote viewing, mm-hmm. and it's it's stream of consciousness, it's channeling, it's it's who knows what, but it's not remote viewing. When um, when a person is practicing remote viewing, and you have described on other occasions, and I think it's worth for any new listeners who might not be familiar with the process, coordinates of locations are used. And explain to us uh, why and what that does for the consciousness of the viewer. Well, this is probably going to blow some minds. It started off Originally, the original remote viewing tasking methodology was what we called beacon. And what you'd do is the viewer, someone who the viewer knew, uh, would go to a location that had been randomly selected into which the viewer had no, no awareness. They were separated, and then the person was, the, the beacon team was given what, where they should go, and they went there, and they, then the viewer was supposed to home in on them, focus in on them, and describe their surroundings. Okay, that was the first one. But if you want to collect intelligence, against a foreign threat, you're not going to, 
if you can get somebody to go over to the target to be the beacon, you might as well just give them a camera and, and not even worry about remote viewing, right? right? Mm-hmm. So, so how do you deal with that? So they started using geographic coordinates. Uh, Jacques Vallée, in fact. Have you ever interviewed Jacques? Oh, of course. We've had Jacques on many times over the years. Jacques Vallée, most people don't know this, but he was actually an advisor to the remote viewing program in the early 70s. He's a remarkable man. He's amazing. Um, I got to know him when he came to speak at our remote viewing conference a few years back. He's great. In fact, uh, just very quick note, uh, we're speaking together again over in Paris uh, in March. I think it's the 12th is the date. There's a remote viewing conference in Paris, France, um, and he and I and some other folks are going to be speaking there as well. Oh, wonderful. So. Well, you know, his recent book, Dr. Bob interviewed him on, which really talks about prior to our technological age, sightings that can be classified as UFO sightings or encounters with unusual mm-hmm. things that might be considered extraterrestrial. It was quite fascinating. Well, and it was a brilliant strategy, by the way, I thought, to have researched along those lines. Well, he, he's an amazing guy. He really is. And he's, he's not just a, a ufologist, if you will, although I think he wouldn't like that term, but he's not just a ufologist. He's actually a legitimate hardcore scientist yeah and uh very respected done a lot of things that have nothing to do with that that are that are amazing so anyway he's the one that came up with the idea of using geographic coordinates mm-hmm. he said essentially ingo swan he said you know all you really need is an address why don't you use geographic coordinates as your address and right. so right. everybody thought that was just crazy because geographic coordinates are just kind of an arbitrary convention you know we've all agreed that if you if we draw these imaginary lines on the surface of the globe we can find places by referring to these imaginary lines, right? Well, they tried it, and it worked. So we used geographic coordinates for a long time, and it worked. Uh, you could give a viewer who knew nothing about the target the the latitude and longitude, and they could indeed describe what was at that where those two lines came together. It was amazing. But what really got crazy is when somebody said, "Well, how do you know they're just not memorizing what's at the end of all the coordinates?" And although that would be even more amazing than remote viewing, and you get right down to it. But, <laughs> Truthfully. <laughs> <laughs> but nonetheless, there are some problems with lat longs, because after a while, you do sort of get an idea where in the world they are, but that doesn't actually help you do better. It actually makes you do worse. Mm-hmm. That would make some sense. Because then you start having preconceptions about what's at, the, what's at that location. And, you mm-hmm. know, you might get a coordinate you recognize the Soviet Union. It's February, so you start imagining cold it's winds snow, blowing right, over the exactly. steppies. And, yeah. And it might actually be a laboratory in Moscow. You know, mm-hmm. who knows? But, mm-hmm. but, but that got to be problematic. So they came. What they did instead was they substituted just an arbitrary random number. They just picked out of the air for the for the coordinates. And they told us that they were encrypting the coordinates. There was a code for what those coordinates were. And so we still thought there was a link to, to the latitude and longitude, right? Well, it turned out it was just smoke and mirrors. They just picked a number, and the one I always use for as an example is eight six seven five three zero nine. Okay. So let's say your arbitrary number is 8675309, and that is linked to the idea that you should describe the Eiffel Tower. That Let's say that's your training target, and they want you to describe the Eiffel Tower. You don't want to tell the viewer what the target is, because then everything they know about it, everything else just gets in the way, and they, they can't function psychically under those circumstances. So the viewer has to be blind to the target. You've got to give them some way of getting there. So you give them eight six seven five three zero nine and somewhere else that's been linked to describe the Eiffel Tower, and believe it or not, the viewer still picks up on where they're supposed to go, and they describe the target. So it's what really do you amazing. think is taking place? So if we're not using the actual number of coordinate, but a reference number to that location, what well, is taking place in that. consciousness? There actually isn't even a connection of the coordinate. We've 
completely left the coordinate out of it these I days. I see. The number, actually, we think it's linked to human intention. Mm-hmm. And, and we think that's what it's been all along. Uh, the latitude and longitude, again, really are abstract reference. They have no real existence, no, no uh, ontological We apply reality, meaning right? to them, right. Yeah. And so the intention all along was that the viewer describe what was at those imaginary, that, those imaginary coordinates. And so when you do this, the, the tasker has this idea, we, I want the viewer to describe the Eiffel Tower. Well, they, they give them that coordinate, and then the viewer goes out to try, well, coordinate this arbitrary number, 8675309. The viewer goes out and tries to find where in the universe that's linked and comes across this intention, right? And so I like to joke, a viewer's got to be psychic in two different ways. The first way is he's got to read the mind of the tasker to find out what the task is, <laughs> okay, and then has actually got to go out and then describe it using remote viewing. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, I want you to describe, if you can, very briefly, this process and how it applies to our lives today and why you now have devoted yourself to teaching other people not only remote viewing but dowsing. The premise that I raised at the beginning of this evening, Paul, is that we live at times where our intuition and heightening it is very important, not just to our survival but to our enhancement. We'll be right back. Our guest is Dr. Major. I love saying that. Dr. Major Paul Smith, though he calls himself Paul. And you can find more at www.rviewer.com. And we're back. I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus, and this is 21st Century Radio. Now let's return to our program. I have um, pretty much lived my life by asking questions, and I've often sort of thought about where did that start? Why am I one of those people that ask questions? In thinking about it, I'm reminded of my mother, the late Limpy Meyerhoff, and she used to say to me in great frustration, I think I've said this once or twice in my lifetime to the public, she used to tell me after I'd asked some profound question about God or something philosophic about why we're born and then we die, you know, the regular questions we all ask throughout our lives, but sometimes stop asking them and just get on with the business of being. She used to say to me, the answer is there is no answer. You know, if you have, some of you may have had some very thought-provoking adolescents who are very introspective, as we tend to be during adolescence. And for some of us, the quest that begins in that fashion doesn't end with adolescence. It goes on throughout one's life in finding one's place and purpose in the world. So she used to say to me, as a way to just get me to, I guess, be quiet, the answer is there is no answer. I have learned, though, that that wasn't really true. I mean, God bless my mother. She was right about a lot of things. In this respect, I don't think she was right. Because the truth is, and this has been my experience as an investigative broadcaster, a reporter, an author, a student of the mystery teachings in general, is that the answer is in the question. Questions become really important. How we frame them, what we're trying to find out. So I thought, given that we have a guest, Dr. Major Paul H. Smith, a wonderful um, gentleman who joined me about five years ago, almost to the day, to discuss remote viewing. 
especially how the military uses remote viewing. And when you listen to news reports about missing people, remote viewers could be very useful in looking at the environment and at looking what has occurred and what might occur, meaning you're not bound by time as a remote viewer. And we'll take a look at that with Dr. Smith. You can really, I would really encourage you all, no matter what, to go to his website and look at some of the work that he did way back when from 83 to 1990 when he worked during the Stargate program for the U.S. military. You can also learn more, a DVD called Remote Viewing. Uh, Actually, it's called A World Without Secrets, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about that before our hour's up. It's a DVD on technical dowsing, and we're going to talk about that relationship. But Paul, before the break, I I mentioned that I'd like to hear from your vantage point. Here we are, 20 20 years out since you did the work for the military and you've been out teaching it and using it and showing others how it's important as an addition to our set of skills. How would you describe its use today and why is it important enough for you to be teaching others? Well, let me answer that real quick. First, I want to say if folks visit my website, sign up for my news list too. I have an email news list. And there's a place to put in your email address, and you'll get updates from me on various things. Oh, wonderful, including where you teach. Again, it's www.rviewer.com. Yes, okay, thank you. Um, Of course, the question always is, what good is this? Let's say it even does work. What's the point? Why would you you do this? And I have to say, a lot of people take the course just because because it's um, essentially a self-actualization thing. It's evidence that you really are more than your physical body. And a lot of people are looking for for proof of that. And they find it when they actually succeed in describing targets that they have no access to whatsoever other than through the power of their own minds. But there are other folks who want to actually make make practical use of this. Um, Some folks uh, come to learn it because they want to help find missing people. One of my students is just finished actually my advanced course, uh, is very big in this, uh, an organization, organization called uh, Find Me, or mm-hmm. Find To Me, or Find Me Too, or something like that, I can't right. remember, but, but they, they try and find missing folks. Um, other folks want to help the police solve cases. Uh, there are some people who are playing around with medical uh, intuition, essentially, seeing what they can do in the medical field surprising number are using it for investment purposes. Uh, there are ways you can employ remote viewing and dowsing both to uh, to actually make money in certain avenues and venues. Uh, I, I don't necessarily endorse this, but uh, but gambling is one way people try it. Uh, I had a um, one of the folks used my uh, the principles taught in my dowsing DVD training set to win eighteen thousand dollars in the Idaho lottery. Wow, yeah. And and as of course we've always said, pretty much like you, these are skills that are really spiritual tools and they really shouldn't necessarily be used for personal profit, though people may do that. I think Mm -hmm. if we look worldwide, these talents are used for the elevation of the community. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, uh, I I guess that depends on where your particular um, moral compass points. That's true. And also what your destiny and karma is. But I noticed because you are, you also have this International Remote Viewing Association, we're not just talking about a few folks anymore in America. So, So given that one can use these skills, we cultivate this innate sense of knowing. At some point, you can dispense with numbers, right? You just are able to know. Um, 
I'm, not, I'm sure what you mean. But Meaning some people person. said, well, remote viewing is only about having sites and looking for them. And, and like you're explaining right now, mm-hmm. it's not just about locating places. The, oh, it's no, a skill it's that about we... describing. Uh, to me, one of the most powerful things about remote viewing is what it says about human nature, uh, which is really the motivation behind my dissertation. I realized when I'm having these amazing kinds of experiences that that it was clearly evidence that, that as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are more than our physical bodies. Now, I'm borrowing that phrase from, from Bob Monroe mm-hmm. of the Monroe Institute. Yes, That's he's kind been of their with us many times. Down there, but, yeah. Well, and, uh, and I think it, recently Jean Millay was with Dr. Bob, and she's pointing out the fifth force is consciousness, meaning consciousness is far more than just this thing that is inside of us. Well, in fact, that's one uh, a conclusion I've kind of come to again, partly through the work in my on my dissertation, is that that ESP, remote viewing, all of these modalities, they, they I'm I'm persuaded they just can't possibly be part of the physical engine that runs the the physical part of the universe. There are folks like like my friend Dean Radin, who who he and I have lots of discussions. Um, about various things, he's convinced that that non locality is. Uh, very basic principle of quantum physics will explain ESP, uh, or essentially these kind of consciousness effects. And I just don't think that's that's going to happen. Uh, I don't think non-locality can explain it. The phenomenon is a non-local phenomenon in that there doesn't seem to be any direct causal relationship between here and where the thing is that you're perceiving. Right? But I think what it is is evidence that consciousness really is a second uh, primitive in the universe. Physical matter is a primitive, and consciousness is a, is a primitive. So they're basically brothers or siblings rather than one being the product of the other. Mm-hmm. Science believes that consciousness is a product of the physical universe, and I think this stuff is very good evidence that consciousness doesn't owe anything to, to physics. That's a beautiful way to say something that takes many of us thousands of books to get an understanding of. And and I can remember my dear friend, um, both Christopher Bird, who, as you know, is an excellent dowser, yep. and Terry Ross, who was my teacher, he used to say it's about being everywhere and every when. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the way of describing it. You teach these advanced and, and basic controlled remote viewing courses. Again, you can learn more at Paul Smith's website, rviewer.com. But how does dowsing come into this practice that either remote viewing, dowsing, and other intuitive talents? Yeah. I, uh, dowsing, uh, the way I look at it, dowsing is really partakes of the same underlying mechanism that remote viewing does. It's both part of the same human faculty, just used in a different way. And I like to say that dowsing and remote viewing are the inverse of each other. So speaking very elementarily here, is that a word, elementarily? Anyway. I like that word. Basically, um, in remote viewing, you know where something is, you don't know what it is. And your your task is to find out. In dowsing, you know what it is, you don't know where it is. Mm, That's lovely. And so they are really complementary. In fact, in the military program, we would use them together. We would use the remote viewing. We'd start off, and, uh, and we knew – this is, it gets complicated very quickly. But the idea was we would do a remote viewing section on the target – and once the viewer, the viewer starts off blind, the, the managers may know what the target is, but they don't want the viewer to know because that dis, uh, disrupts the process. They run the viewer, viewer blind on it. Once the viewer successfully describes the target, 
then that becomes the identity identifier to establish the intention for the dowsing part of it. So we do a full up remote viewing session, get a great description of the target, then use the dowsing to locate where, for example, the drug drug smuggling ship might be that we're trying to locate, or the narcotics on an island that have been hidden or whatever. And so we use the two together, and it, it was a really amazing um, unification of two different tools to accomplish a, a common purpose. So have you found in your own experience, I mean, you're obviously very good at both, that it gets to the point, people have often asked me this because I'm an intuitive, and I just see, and sometimes I hear, and sometimes I can control it, and sometimes it just happens to me. After a person practices for a while, does it get, I remember when I was being taught different things about dowsing and there's different techniques, whether it's a pendulum or rods or a stick thing on your finger, that eventually you can dispense with any tool that's an antenna and just know. Yes, I call that deviceless dowsing because you have no device intermediary between you and, and your task. And what is it within yourself that lets you know that you're onto the target, whether it's the depth of a well or looking for a missing person? How do you know that you're on when you're on? Well, ultimately, the only way you know is when you actually get feedback and you find out you were right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's scientific proof, but within yourself, because some people say sometimes it's a hunch, sometimes I just know. Yeah, the the indicator. When when you're using uh, rods or pendulum or whatever, you can think of that as kind of the the needle on a gauge. It's a way of your subconscious being able to tell you when you are on the target or where you found the target or whatever. Because um, because the conscious mind, the conscious awareness, likes to process things and give you wrong answers all the time in this field, which is why so many times psychic predictions end up being wrong is because they're filtered through conscious awareness. You have to learn how to bypass that, and dowsing does that beautifully. You have the instrument, uh, the rods or whatever, that, that moves when your subconscious recognizes you've located the thing you're looking for, right? Which, again, goes back to something I said before you joined us, is that the question is so critical. You have to ask the right question to get the answer. precise, yes, absolutely. Assuming that you've asked the right question, um, if you once get really uh, practiced at it, you don't need the implements to do it. Well, look, I have have one implement here. I, I have time. Don't go away. Paul Smith will continue with us on 21st Century Radio. Follow all of our guests and our links to them at www.2121stcenturyradio.com. And don't go away. More coming up with me, Zoe Hieronymus. Hi, this is Dr. Bernie Siegel speaking to you for 21st Century Radio and Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. She's top quality, as is her program, speaking about consciousness and opening our minds to what I think will be the future of both medical care as well as how we care for ourselves and each other and really begin to understand ourselves. And my latest book is The Art of Healing. Bless you all. You know, since the 1980s, we've covered remote viewing and psychic warfare, and over the years, wonderful men like Ingo Swan, Charles Tart, Hal Putoff, Joe McMoneagle, Robert Monroe, Dale Graff, and Paul Smith, who joins us again this evening, have joined us to talk about this work, its importance, 
where we can use it, why we should use it. And that's what Paul has made really his life about now is helping others learn how. He has a DVD out on technical dowsing called A World Without Secrets. Learn more at www.rviewer.com. And Paul, you mentioned to me that people can get this DVD even if they're not a winner tonight when we ask a question later on. Yes, that's right. Uh, a World Without Secrets is actually a documentary. It includes Hal Putoff, as you, you mentioned, Hal, and, uh, and some other folks, uh, including myself, of course, kind of giving the idea behind dowsing, what it is, its history, how it was used in the military. Um, and uh, it's, it's uh, kind of the introductory part to a two-DVD dowsing training set that folks can buy. Um, that that uh, I conducted and we put together. Uh, it's great. I've gotten really great reviews on the DVD training set. But if you just want a taste of it, this DVD, A World Without Secrets, is free to anyone who wants to order it. Um, you uh, you can either go to my web page and there's a free dowsing a free DVD. You can click on that link, or you can go to this website specially set up to get the free DVD. Thank you. That's wonderful. All right. So I said at the start of the evening before you joined us that developing intuition, heightening our sensitivity, that these are all skills. As I love the way Ingo calls them, bio-mind superpowers. Mm-hmm. Why is dowsing, remote viewing, and all of these intuitive talents important enough that you now devote yourself to this, the international community of people as well as training people? Well, the uh, first and most important, I've sort of touched on this before, the idea that it really changes our view of what human nature is. And that's important for because if humans really are more than their physical bodies, that changes our whole outlook on, on um, how humans ought to be treated. If we realize that humans are more than just this biological machine walking around, you know, a machine is imminently disposable, and, and oftentimes uh, societies that come to think of as humans as nothing more than a package of meat walking around. Uh, they turn them into slaves. They persecute them. They kill them, or whatever. Uh, that that has to do with attitudes about what humans are. If we come to realize that humans really are more than just this biological package, we have to start giving them more respect. I think, um, and and ten, <clears throat> many of us already believe that. Many of us already are aware of the fact. And I think we tend to treat people differently if we understand that they are something. Well, and, and that if, if everybody really believed what the literature and the sacred traditions teach that we are one, mm-hmm. we would live more like we are one. Because, mm-hmm. as I say, if you can't control your anger for yourself, do it for the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right. So, kind of like the, uh, the golden rule of anger management, right? Yeah. No, it's 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 very true, and and it's very hard for all of us. I think this is why I've spent the last four years of my life writing books about self-refinement based in the tradition of Kabbalah and the ancient mm-hmm. Hebrews, the tree of life, and many of the other symbols of the world, when you put them all together, end up telling us the exact same story about mm-hmm. dimensionality and unity, and that we are not just a physical body, and we are existing in other dimensions, and our capacity to be simultaneously out of the physical body and in the physical body is how we're designed. I mean, there's, you know, there's Hollywood versions of all of this, like Men Who Stare at Goats, which I watched, and of course, knowing some of the inside, saw how silly some of their stuff was. But it's kind of like all of these aptitudes are getting out 
through the public door of Hollywood, which is an unfortunate way because it's diluted and distorted, which is why people like you become so important. Because if somebody in our listening audience really wants to learn dowsing and really wants to learn about remote viewing, you can trust somebody like Paul Smith and the work of his teachers. Go to www.rviewer.com. Now, before the break, I had mentioned my interest in following up with you on the rest of the world's use of these skills, because while the United States might still poo-poo UFOs and the regular media in our country treats all of this as dismissible, in other parts of the world, it's not at all. How have you seen it change in the last 20 years, whether it's applications in China or Russia or Germany or Israel? Do you know of any of those things in particular? Um, Well, I I do know a little bit, mostly about current news reports. um, But the Chinese uh, take it seriously, although they take it seriously in a different way. Uh, they're like the, the Soviets. Soviets had a huge program in this, but they were absolutely convinced it had a materialistic base, a physicalistic base. And, and of course, you know, being Marxist, they had to, uh, had to have some kind of materialist uh, premise to it, or it just wasn't acceptable, right? So, so they, that was their working model, um, and they were all excited about it, the Chinese the same way. Um, and they made they had a lot of interesting research, which is going to come out soon. Uh, Joe McMonigle's protege, Ed May, who was the director of the uh, remote viewing research part of the program in California when it finally was terminated by the CIA, Ed has been working, and Joe as well, has been working very closely uh, with the Soviet ESP research program, the, the, the folks who are left over from that. And uh, as I understand it, they're working on a book that they're ultimately going to publish, first in Russian and then in in English, that will kind of give the history of that program, which I would love to see. I'd love to know what they did and how they did it and what kind of success rates they had and that kind of thing. Um, so that, that will be exciting. Uh, I do know that, uh, of course, the a number of different countries or entities within countries have been involved in it. Uh, the Japanese, uh, through Sony, Sony had a big program uh, in in ESP research and, and psychokinesis and such for a long time. And um, the Israelis, uh, I think you mentioned them. Um, there's some some of that I can't even talk about. I don't know whether it's ever been declassified. But right, right. No, and, and I understand that, and I think our audience can appreciate that. When you start to open a door to some of these programs, whether they're in our country or others, mm-hmm. sometimes even what you're told is disinformation, and that's also a reality. But for the listener who says, hey, I'm a sensitive person, and I get hunches, and I have dreams, and I sometimes see things before they happen, those are generally the kind of people who would benefit by this practice. Describe for us, if you could, briefly, how the practice of dowsing and the practice of remote viewing actually strengthens your ability to be intuitive. Okay. <clears throat> Let me first preface all this by saying anyone can benefit from this. It isn't just someone who shows little sparkles of, of intuition. Uh, even people who have got that suppressed for years, in fact, if, they may be able to benefit the most from it, right? But um, how can it help out? Well, first of all, dowsing has actually a lot of practical uses in one's life. Um, there are ways you can apply dowsing and help you with decisions. There are ways you can apply it to help you find things that you're missing. Um, there are ways you can use dowsing to uh, to predict things that you may need to. In fact, I did a, a workshop at the remote viewing conference this last uh, 
this year, in fact, down in uh, Vegas in June, where I, I taught precognitive dowsing, where uh, you predict... I, I used a number of different exercises predicting what uh, what uh, suit was going to pop up in the card when you shuffled some cards. Uh, wow, I didn't remember what all I did. Uh, I have to look it back up again. But it was very successful. In fact, Russell Targ um, had never tried anything like this before, and he comes up afterwards. He was all excited. He said... Wow, that's really great! I got five out of five. <laughs> that doesn't surprise <laughs> me. <laughs> and I and I purposely did it precognitively because there's no chance of sensory leakage. There's no way that you can cheat in a precognitive case like that, right? And uh, and I had many, many, many folks come up and say they they found it successful. And you can apply that to a lot of different areas in your life. Dowsing is really useful. Remote viewing as well. Uh, it uh, obviously it has different, kind of a slightly different modality of, of application than dowsing does, but you can use them together, as I, I mentioned, although in more practical things. Well, you know, as our daughter Anna had used to say to her friends, it's not fair having a psychic mother. Oh, I <laughs> she, she would go somewhere, and of course, I'd know before she knew she was going, and I'd you know say, "Hey, but oh, she go, I'm not going there." And of course, and she'd come back the next day. How did you know? Or I'd call her and say, "Don't go where you're planning." You know, I, it would pop into my head. It's not like I was actually spying on her psychically, so mm-hmm. that sometimes when you're really connected to people or places or events, up. these things come to you because you're like a magnet for the light ray of the thought form. I mean, that's not a very technical description. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to speak in, in metaphors oftentimes in this because we don't necessarily have actual words that convey the understandings. Right? Which is the challenge I think many of us face mm-hmm. in so many of the new paradigm studies is we really don't have the vocabulary yet. We have lots of ways of describing similar things. You know, talking about teenagers with psychic parents, um, I was just out in Frederick uh, over Thanksgiving with my son who's now married and has a, a grandchild. Congratulations, grandpa. Thank you. That's <laughs> anyway, lovely. I was out there and, and somebody was joking about, oh, yeah, your dad probably, oh, in fact, this might have been on that, uh, this might have even been on our 98 Rock radio interview. Oh, I had. wonderful anyway, for said, Marilyn, that rock and roll would actually branch out. I thought that was great. That's it fantastic. Very amazing. But they uh, they were joking. They said, well, it must be terrible having a psychic dad. He'd call you up and say, what are you doing to that girl on homecoming? And she <laughs> said, no, you don't know. You don't understand. He actually came there, <laughs> which did happen. I went, went and caught him, showed and up to get his behind home. You know, but I think you know when people say, "Well, you're spying," it's really not. What happens is it just becomes a part of who you are and how you yeah. live your life. You're linked with someone close to you. you know? Yeah. And I think mothers, particularly around the world, get these intuitions about family members. Not always. And sometimes people said, you know, it's it's hardest to see ahead for those you're closest to because you have all of these own emotional hopes and dreams. But how has, in summary, because we're about to say goodbye, how has this work, you have told us already, it changed your worldview. You know that we're not just physical bodies, that there is something superior. But how does it change your outlook for the future of humanity? Well, um, I think ultimately this is going to, ultimately the majority of folks are going to recognize this as a reality. Uh, I think the skeptical view is on its way out, although it's going to go kicking and screaming. We're nowhere near that yet, but ultimately it's going to change that. And once that does, then we will actually start seriously looking into this. Right now, research into ESP is just a tiny drop in the bucket of all the research that's done. It's minuscule. But once it becomes accepted, then we'll be dedicating the kind of resources to researching 
this aspect of human consciousness that we've dedicated to other things like researching geology or nuclear physics or whatever. And once that kind of a research effort gets applied, I think we're going to have huge breakthroughs in our understanding of humanity. And um, and not just that, but how to use it, how to control it, how to manage it so that to the benefit of the human race, I think. Yeah, one of the questions that I have always sort of looked at for myself is if we remote view the past and we participate with our current consciousness by remote viewing the past, can't we change the impact of its resonant wave? Of the past? Yeah, and its effect on the present. So are, that's an interesting question. I'll have to think this through. You, you kicked in my philosopher's mind. Yeah, now. well, think about that, because I've asked a number of people who work in this kind of work, uh, and because it seems possible to me. It's not that you actually change history. It's that you change the effect of history in the present. Oh, okay. I see where, you know, you need to read Chapter 9 of my dissertation. <laughs> I love dissertations. <laughs> Oh, I'll bet you do, yeah. I would like to very much. Well, in the meantime, let me encourage my audience to go to www.rviewer.com. That's rviewer.com. Our guest has been Dr. Paul H. Smith, his book, Reading the Enemy's Mind, Inside Stargate, America's Psychic Espionage. And again, Paul, always a pleasure to be with you. And I suppose I'll see you at a distance from somewhere. Absolutely. If I don't drop in and visit you sometime when I'm out seeing grandbabies. That sounds great. That would be lovely. Thanks for letting me be on. Absolutely. What a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be joined by somebody like Dr. Smith. Again, folks, go to www.rviewer.com. And this is where we have to say goodbye. 21st Century Radio is produced by Hieronymus and Company. Our executive producer and research assistant is Laura Kortner. And I'm Dr. Zohara Hieronymus. And remember, we do need more love in the world.